I'm Afshin Ratansi, and we're going underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Today is five years to the day MI6's Sergei Skripal, recruited from Russian security services by an associate of Christopher Steele, was allegedly poisoned by radioactive Novichok near England's top-secret chemical weapons lab at Porton Down. Steele authored the fake dossier against President Trump, and despite denials from Moscow, NATO nations accused Russia of the poisoning, leading to all-out NATO economic war on Russia. All that as the people of Donbass were attacked by Kiev leading up to the current war in Europe. So when will this European war end and who will win or will we all lose? With me as an arguable unofficial advisor to the policymakers and corporations involved, arguably now in a global conflict. George Friedman, founder of Stratfor and Geopolitical Futures. He joins me for today's episode from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much, uh, George, for coming on. You know, uh, Raytheon's profits apparently doubled since the new phase of the Ukrainian crisis a year ago. Uh, I know that they uh, reportedly, uh, a subscriber to Geopolitical Futures, Goldman Sachs mentioned, Merrill Lynch, Dow, Coca-Cola. I don't think you're allowed to tell us. But uh, when will the war end then and who's going to win? Well, I don't think it's going to end very soon. I mean, and I don't see how either side can win. Uh, the Russians are constantly bogged down. They're unable to mount effective uh, it's incursions, uh, they do some attacks, but they, they ultimately fail. The Ukrainians are not able to beat them. On the other hand, Russia can't possibly win because the U.S. weapons that are given to the Ukrainians will devastate them. And at the same time, uh, the Ukrainians are going to simply be pushed back and forth and nothing will happen. So the real point here is it's, work. it's got to be negotiated, and a negotiation is very, very difficult. There's no geographical point where we can divide the, the forces. Well, we're talking to an advisor for the Progressive Caucus in Congress in a week or so's time, and uh, he's been saying that uh, negotiations are off the table. They had to remember retract a letter asking for negotiations, calling it uh, scared of being called defeatist. Uh, you say that uh, Russia can't win. I mean, uh, some say that already, arguably, in the global south, Russia has already won, uh, not least, uh, obviously, the ruble currency, but the, in terms of the deals now being done between BRICS countries, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Russia has already begun creating the new world order that uh, so many have predicted. I think uh, Stratfor and uh, uh, your organization constantly uh, talk about the possibility of one. Well, possibility is not a reality. The fact is that Russia made a massive intelligence failure before the war. He did not anticipate how well the Ukrainians would fight. He did not really understand that the Europeans would not side with Europe, would not side with Russia, nor its remain neutral. And he completely misunderstood the United States and what was going to happen. So at this point, after a year, he's con conquered a small fraction of Ukraine. So in Russia, there is a serious question, as you've asked, when does this end? And there's also the question asked, why haven't we done much better than we were supposed to? Uh, the expectation was that this would be a fast war. It isn't, and therefore... Sorry, how did you know that? How do you know that the expectation would be that it would be a fast war and that actually Russia wanted to go in more slowly, not using shock and awe tactics that the United States did in Iraq, Afghanistan? Uh, 
Libya and uh, Syria, arguably. Well, he did use shock and awe. He just did failed at it. Well, he didn't words, destroy no, Kiev the way that the Americans destroyed Baghdad. The point is to the point that he's not gone and defeated the Ukrainian army. In a war, taking cities, destroying them, they don't really count very much. You don't win wars that way. An army must defeat the enemy army. Putin has failed to defeat the Ukrainian army because of American support. And in that failure, uh, there are severe questions coming in Russia that can be seen in the use of social media of why did Putin start this war when he couldn't win and why did he uh, not win? So the, the situation from the Russian point of view is quite devastating. I mean, this is a major power fighting a very minor power and not winning. Not well, winning largest for country, the largest yeah. country in, in Western Europe. And of, some obviously say it's difficult to ascertain that Putin's popularity has never been higher because he's finally responded to a huge constituency, the majority in, in Russia. But you say you want negotiations. Do you think Biden kind of uh, listening, perhaps he's a subscriber to your organization, I'm not sure, or he was listening to what Donald Trump was saying in South Carolina, uh, that's why he's not supplying the F-16s. Biden called for negotiations over two months ago. Uh, the Russians refused. The Russians wanted concessions beforehand. So the American position has been that, and he's also told the Ukrainians that he, they have to negotiate whether they want to or not. So the American position on this is, one, we're not going to let the Russians win. Two, we want a negotiation. And it's Putin who has had it found very difficult to organize a, uh, a negotiation because he has so many constituencies, some wedded to the war, some not. That he well, the majority is on his side, and Biden's offer of negotiations was surely premised on the idea that the Russians had to get out of Crimea first. There were axiomatic well, claims before negotiations would go forward from the Americans. Any negotiation. Education, you come to the table with certain expectations, expecting to negotiate them away. You don't call for negotiations simply to have the other side capitulate. So when he made that, that proposal several times, obviously he was going to come to the table with a maximalist position. That's the way it works. But the point was that Russia could not negotiate given the failure of its first offensive. It could not come to the table, it felt, uh, unless it had achieved a decisive victory. And it hasn't been able to do that. So you don't think that the uh, Kremlin policy is actually, and it's been voted for by the Duma, is to create this new world order? It's not actually really about Ukraine. Ukraine is emblematic of eastward NATO expansion, but it's really about de-dollarization, about uh, BRICS alignment, about... Uh, the togetherness with China. I don't know what from they're the babbling about. But, but if, from the outset, they were an army that was very small, that was not designed to go further than Ukraine, was not going to attack NATO or anything like that. Whatever you know, they fantasized, and I don't think they fantasized much. They're very great realists. Uh, the, these are things for propaganda. They want a new world order. They can't even take Ukraine. So that's the problem.
How disciplined do you think that NATO nation media has been in covering the war from that point of view so that we don't see what people are saying in Latin America, Africa, Asia, uh, which is clearly that Putin is a new world leader and that this has been a great oh. success? To be blunt, it doesn't matter what they're saying. Uh, this is a war, and the war will end in a certain way, and that will be the reality. And whether or not uh, third world countries uh, are celebrating Putin or what, it really doesn't matter. The real question now is the outcome of this war and how it ends. And even if it ends, Russia as a great power really doesn't have the economic engine to be able to be in the United States or uh, UK or something like that. Russia is a very poor country. It's almost a third world country. It has very little effective industry. And uh, it lives off of the export of primary commodities, oil. So it's very hard to see Russia as being able to supply the capital that would be needed to dominate uh, the, the world. In order to dominate uh, the world, to be a great power, you have to be a source of capital and a buyer of exports. And that's something China has learned and the Russians are learning too. Russia has made it clear it doesn't want to dominate the world. You don't believe that all the uh, loss of energy exports to Western Europe, obviously currently uh, suffering a great deal of hardship through their arguable self-sanctioning, you don't think that it can all just be replaced by uh, China, the New Deal with Pakistan, uh, new deals uh, with the Global South that are being organized as we speak? Oil has to be transported. So you can make many deals. But the idea that these countries, particularly China, at that distance is going to be able to efficiently transfer enough energy to solve whatever Europe's problems are, and they're doing better than was expected at the beginning on this oil issue. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's far-fetched. They can meet, mitigate some of the problems, perhaps, but the infrastructure that Russia created to serve the Europe, I mean, is necessary. And Russia needs it badly, too. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, the Nord Stream was a big project. The project with Pakistan has been mooted uh, in the past few days. You mentioned Britain as a great power, I presume you mean historically. Uh, we probably both don't have much time for the IMF forecast, but you saw that Russia is forecast to do better than Britain, a leading uh, member of NATO and a country pouring weapons into Ukraine. Anybody who tries to forecast Russia's economy is in a fool's game. And with the war going on, and it's not clear how it ends, nobody knows what Russia's, what Russia's economic situation is going to be. Nor Ukraine's, nor in some senses even the United States. We're in a war, and IMF is doing peacetime analysis. Now, uh, Donald Trump's uh, South Carolina speech was not even covered on uh, network U.S. television. I don't know whether that's another sign of a kind of implicit media censorship going on. He is clear and said uh, this is not uh, Russia's sole fault what has happened in Ukraine. Uh, what do you think of Trump's chances and what do you think of the impact of media censorship of Trump's campaign on his presidential chances? It's extraordinary how much ground he's lost in the United States.
He has core support. But beyond that, it's almost boring what's, what Trump is doing. So Trump has been a presence in American politics for a long time. He lost the last election. Shall we say behave badly is one of it. But many, many people simply don't care what he says. So I don't think there's censorship going on as much as indifference. So why is Murdoch's Fox News doing so well, the most popular cable channel, one that does allow Trump to speak, and the ratings of uh, MSNBC and CNN and those competitors on cable are uh, dropping catastrophically? I watch Fox News to understand what this small faction is doing. Uh, and it's interesting to hear Trump. So in many ways, he's become a museum piece. And, you know, whatever it is, defeated politicians don't do very well. One of the myths the media has created is that in spite of Trump being roundly defeated and profoundly embarrassed by what happened on, June, on January 6th, that he still is a major figure. Now, what is unique here is that this is sort of the first time I've seen a defeated uh, president uh, unable to rise up being treated as a real possibility for re-election. I, I don't think when we look at the numbers, uh, he's likely to get the Republican nom nomination. George Friedman, I'll stop you there. More from the geopolitical forecaster and chairman of Geopolitical Futures after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the geopolitical forecaster and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, George Friedman. Do you think there would be a war in Europe if Trump was president? Biden, of course, was uh, sending in weapons and special forces uh, ahead of the 24th of February last year. Well, what Trump tries to forget is he supplied Poland with many of the tanks and weapons uh, when he went there. They were going to call it uh, Fort Trump, if you remember that. And he was instrumental in setting it up, which was reasonable and possible. But the idea that somehow he had a magic formula to deal with um, the Russians. Remember, uh, if the Russians were to take Ukraine, NATO from the northern part to the southern part would be facing Russian forces. And the question would be, what will the Russians do next? And that's a question that the Russians may not know, or they may know very well and are frustrated. But giving up Ukraine and simply walking away would have brought them directly into the Cold War again. And I don't think Trump or any other American president wants to sit at the Fulda Gap and uh, try to experience that. A Cold War except that representatives, envoys at the United Nations representing most of humanity did not share the opinions of Western Europe or the United States and did not condemn uh, what Russia believes is a, uh, a saving of the people of, of Donbass. Um, I mean, South Korea refusing to uh, aid uh, what uh, the detractors of NATO say is NATO's war on Russia through Ukraine. We heard President Lula, who has been on this program, uh, he said uh, in the past few days, the war is on poverty, not Russia. Well, I'm definitely fascinated by what people say. 
I'm far more interested in what they do. And what we had one vote in the United Nations condemning Russia's attack, in which even China abstained. Only five countries voted against it. And so the changes. So that vote was taken, and it meant nothing. And other vo voices will be heard. But we're at a war, and just like the condemnation of Adolf Hitler, not to compare them, uh, didn't mean anything to how that war came out, so on both sides, what non-combatants are saying doesn't really matter. The United States cannot live, and Europe can't live, with Russian forces directly on the border of NATO, because that sets up another war. And Russia cannot live with the United States 260 miles away from Moscow. These are serious people fighting a serious war. And most of those who are offering opinions really don't understand and just are saying things. You famously wrote the book Coming War with uh, Japan in 1991. So far, uh, while South Korea refused to aid uh, NATO's war, Japan has, uh, well, even you must have been a little surprised that it's uh, changed its constitution almost after 1945 in terms of its uh, rearming. Um, do you now think that uh, Japan still poses a threat or is this part of the future that you saw? Every nation with weapons poses a, net, a potential threat to everyone else. That's not interesting. Japan has decided that given the dangers emanating from North Korea, but even more out of China, that it must have its own navy, which I think is a prudent thing for them to do. It is allied with the United States, and that's fine. But over the course of time, these things change. We don't have to assume that it will remain the same. But it's not a surprise that the world's third largest economy should be acquiring a military force equal to that. And you believe that uh, Russia can't win the war in Ukraine. You've seen the friendship grow between Beijing and Moscow. Do you uh, believe that the United States and what some say are the vassal states of Europe are prepared really to fight uh, a war against China and Russia on two fronts? It is impossible for China to aid Russia. The distances involved are just enormous. This is a land war. Having a navy or something doesn't matter. And in that land war, transporting the 500,000 troops physically and then feeding them is simply an impossible thing, which is why for a year China has steered clear of involvement in this war. If they were going to get involved, they'd get involved much sooner. But it's not going to happen. It's logistically impossible. Um, as to will the United States continue? Well, the alternative is to have Russian forces on the border of Poland, of Slovakia, of Hungary, of um, Romania, and the question then is, okay, we've avoided this war. Now we face, at Russia's option, a war farther to the West. So it is it initiated this war. What is the next war it initiates? And under these circumstances, a prudent political leader has to say, I'm much better off holding them back in Ukraine than I am for watching them march on Vienna. I'm not sure how much Hungary is so so bothered about that, uh, arguably. But then what about the economic 
uh, war, you say the pipelines aren't going to be built quick enough, the LNG gas will all be fracked in the US and coming into Europe and replacing the Russian energy. Surely uh, the way that uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization sees it, and certainly here in the Middle East they see it, of course Saudi Arabia and the UAE famously didn't take Biden's phone calls to increase uh, oil supply, is this is an economic war that is uh, gradually being won against US hegemony, whether it be de-dollarization or uh, uh, energy and uh, resource exploitation? Well, if there is a de-dollarization, it is not a pro-ruble event. Um, but if you remember, the Arabs said no now, but the Arabs live and die by selling oil. Uh, the ability of many of the countries to receive the oil physically is difficult. So we have to be very careful. Uh, all sorts of nonsense is in the air. You know, the idea, for example, that Hungary uh, is simply pro-Russian or anything like that. Hungary took the position because it expected the Russians to overwhelm Ukraine very quickly. When they didn't, they've kind of sat there wondering what next to do. And I'm from born, born in Hungary, so I know mm -hmm. they're doing that. Uh, it's, it's very important to understand the saying we have in America. Money talks, I'll say, other things walk. So there is so much jabbering going on. Look at where the artillery shells fall. Look at where the casualties are. That will tell us what's happening. Well, I suppose one uh, thing that keeps coming up here is that Russia was somehow taken by surprise by the response. Do you really think, when so many analysts were predicting uh, that actually the West is dying, the United States is dying, the famous 40 million people, uh, you know, in poverty in the United States, th these powers are now ending, the US empire is ending, of course, they would all coagulate in this kind of way as the new age is created. Well, to look at it very clearly, he did think he could beat the United States. He was wrong. He has been wrong thus far because he was listening to those people who were arguing the United States was dead. Ever since around 1950, Europeans have been declaring the death of the United States. The United States is so far from collapsing its Sir, it's the largest economy in the world. Um, it's the most creative in terms of technology, and it has the ability to cut off technology from China, for example. I think it's really a mistake to see the United States this way. But this was another example of the failure of Russian intelligence. They believed what they were hearing, if that was why they went. But surely they intended to take Ukraine. And surely they wouldn't have done that if they thought the United States was going to do what it did. But it did do it, and now they're floundering. Well, avowedly, they said they didn't want to take Kiev. But you've also written about burgeoning isolationism. I don't know whether that relates to the, uh, well, Steve Bannon's famous phrase for Trump, the American carnage, that, as you say, the United States has so much to uh, offer, but uh, is leaving behind uh, such an underclass. Do you think that is one of the uh, factors there in a new isolationism that maybe, well, I don't know, give me a timescale for it. Well, I, I have a weakness here because I'm living in the United States and I don't see this massive uh, destabilization of society. 
Well, you're in oh, Washington. You just have you go. to go up the road. I mean, life expectancy I live, I live is lower in, than Havana in some parts. I live in Texas. Okay. And in Texas, we have the Mexicans and so on and so forth. And the United States is far too complex a country to reduce to, pardon me, simplistic models like that. Uh, there are people dying in the United States as there is in every... We also have enormous numbers of immigrants trying to get in. So as a former immigrant, I know that the countries that are best are the ones I want to go to. And they're not struggling to get into many of the countries that you would... Yeah, but why are they leaving? Because of the U.S. foreign policy, as so many have said. I've got to just finish, George, with one question about Julian Assange, who's been on this program. And you must be really annoyed by the way... If any one has been a victim of WikiLeaks, it was you. There was no... Uh, it was certainly the Stratfor organization. Despite uh, the enmity between the two of you, and I've got to say, I spoke to Julian, and I did say Stratfor was, a, was an important publication, the one that you founded. Would you still call for his freedom, nevertheless? I wouldn't call for his freedom or refuse the... the the legal system of uh, Britain is just fine. As for what he is, I think it, he is uh, an unreasonable wrecker. And yes, he uh, hurt me by doing it. He didn't find anything there. But he has made his name for himself, and history will judge him. He is another one of these things that are interesting once, not, not, not twice. Well, journalists use his work all the time, and... Uh... Uh, it's the American courts, the Espionage Act, of course, that, that, that got him. Uh, I suppose just finally, then, in 20 years' time, I mean, I'm sure you get it asked all the time, what's going to happen? Well, we're seeing a changing of the guard. One of the most powerful countries in Europe now is Poland. It has, after Britain, really the second largest effective military force. Uh, we're seeing Japan become more military. Um, we see Russia uh, trying to come to terms with the limits of its power under these circumstances. So we're going to see change, as always takes place. And the popular opinion, including mine, is almost always wrong as to what's going to happen. So after Vietnam, I was told many times in Europe that the United States is finished. Well, well that may well be the case, but hasn't quite happened yet. We have to be very careful of casual opinions. George Friedman, thank you. And that's it for the show. We'll be back next Saturday with another brand new episode. And if it's not censored, keep in touch with all our social media and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you very soon.